Well, it is wonderful to be in your midst, and we do thank God for grace uh, partnering with uh, LABTS. So uh, the school has been a blessing in my own life. Uh, I've been associated with it for over 45 years, which is hard to believe. But uh, God has used the school in my life, and because he has, I feel like I have an eternal debt uh, to the school. So I'm thankful for what I'm able to do there, but thankful also for churches like yours that helps to support what we're doing. Our goal is very simple. We come alongside of local churches to train God's people in God's word, uh, to do God's work uh, for God's glory. That's what we're all about. And so if you have your Bible with you or your copy of God's word, please turn with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And I want to read verses 33 through 40. Psalm 119, verse 33. And I'm reading from the preferred translation, the New American Standard Bible. (laughs) Teach me, O Lord, uh, the way of thy statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe thy law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of thy commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to thy testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in thy ways. Establish thy word to thy servant as that which produces reverence for thee. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for thine ordinances are good. Behold, I long for thy precepts. Revive me through thy righteousness. Psalm 119 is a marvelous and wonderful portion of Scripture. Some have called it the Mount Everest, of the Bible. Others have referred to it as the Grand Canyon of the Scriptures. And then there are those who refer to it as the golden alphabet of the Word of God. And the reason why it's referred to as the golden alphabet of the Word of God is because of the literary structure of this psalm. Uh, It is a literary masterpiece. Uh, It's devoted to uh, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, It's divided into 22 stanzas, eight verses each, and each of those stanzas basically is related to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So basically, the psalmist has given us the A to Z of God's word. I don't know who wrote this psalm. It doesn't really bother me that I don't, and I realize that some of you do. Uh, But whoever he is, it's clear that he loved God. So this is not just a man who loves God's word. He loves God. And because he loves God, he loves God's word, and he also loves God's ways. And and Psalm 119 will benefit your life greatly as a child of God. Uh, I have taken this psalm seriously for the last 10 years, so to speak. And I, I, I love this psalm. Uh, Because the psalmist seems to be a person like me. He has desires and he has wants. He has failures. He has struggles. 
and in many ways I can relate to him. I can't say that I'm at the same level that he is, but this portion of scripture created in me a greater love for God's word. And, and so this psalm will bless you. It will benefit you. And there's probably one benefit, one blessing that you're not aware of when it comes to Psalm 119, but Psalm 119 can save your life, your physical life. Uh, there was a bishop in Indeberg in the 17th century, and he was sentenced to death. And the procedure was that when you were sentenced to death, that you can have a psalm sung. So uh, he didn't ask them to sing Psalm 117, which only has two verses, but uh, he sung Psalm 119 with its 176 verses. And lo and behold, before the psalm was finished, a stay of execution had come, and he was set free. So I want to encourage you. <laughs> Learn Psalm 119. Memorize it. Learn to sing it. But seriously, even if it doesn't save your physical life, it will do wonders for your spiritual life. And one of the great things it will do with regards to your spiritual life, it will teach you how to pray and what to pray for. It will show you and me how we need to depend upon our God. And so this psalmist uh, in this stanza, in these eight verses, the thing that is unique about these eight verses is that in each verse, there is a prayer request. So actually in verse 37, there are two. So nine different times he is crying out to God in prayer. Obviously, these are not long prayers. These are short prayers that are right to the point. And he is crying out to God, and what he wants God to do is basically saturate his life with the word of God. This man who loves God, loves God's word, and loves God's ways wants the word of God to be a vital part of his life. He wants his life drenched and saturated with what thus saith the Lord. And I hope that is your desire also. You're at a church that puts a premium on preaching God's word. And it's my hope and my desire that you would want your life to be saturated with the word of God. And if that's going to happen, it will be more than just you hearing the preached word of God and listening to it and studying it, you are going to have to pray the prayers that this psalmist prays, the, the prayers that he offers here in these eight verses are the same kind of prayers that you and I need to be praying any time we are taking in the word of God. And so what should we be praying if we're interested in being a word-saturated Christian? First of all, pray for your mind. Pray for your mind. And in particular, pray for an informed mind. We see this in verses 33 and 34. The psalmist makes two different requests that are related to his mind. He says in verse 33, teach me. 
And then he says in verse 34, give me understanding. The, the psalmist realizes that his mind needs to be saturated with the word of God. And so he cries out to God. He says, oh, Lord, teach me. His concern is not others. His concern right now is himself. He's in a dialogue with God. He's talking to God. He's praying to God. And he says, oh, Lord, teach me. And that is a request of humility. Because frankly, if we were in the same boat as the psalmist, if we knew the word like he knew it, if we could write these 176 verses like he did, we probably would think that we're kind of beyond being taught. But this man never, ever felt like he got to the point where he did not need to be taught by God. He didn't matter. It didn't matter to him who the human teacher was. He was concerned about the divine teacher, the ultimate teacher, the, the one who teaches us the truth. And so he cries out to God and says, God, teach me. And that's something that is repeated over and over again in Psalm 119. But what's unique about this verse, when it says, teach me, it's a really a different word than all those other verses. When he says here, teach me, he says to God, point the way. Show me. And he pictures God as a tour guide, so to speak the tour guide on the bus, and as you're riding on the bus and you're going through the various parts of the city, the tour guide is pointing out the way. And the psalmist is saying to God, God, be my tour guide. Point out the way. Instruct me. And what is it that he wants to be taught? What is it that he wants God to point out? It's more than just God's statutes. Because if you look at the text, he says, teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. See, it's a noble thing to ask God to teach you his statutes, his word. And the psalmist does that in other places. But here, his concern is not so much the content of the word, but the conduct of the word in his life. He understands that associated with God's word is a way of life. And so he says, God, would you teach me the way of thy statutes? God, I know your word is precious and valuable, but, and I know your word uh, paves a path that I should walk down. And that's what I want you to teach me. I want you to teach me the lifestyle that is associated with your wonderful word. And then he goes on in verse 34 to help us to understand that it's not just simply spiritual education or spiritual instruction that we need, but there needs to be enlightenment. There needs to be illumination. Knowledge without understanding is not sufficient. And so what does he say? Give me understanding. Give me wisdom. Give me the ability to discern the truth of your word. He's like saying, I know that two plus two equals four, but I need to see how does that relate to the various areas of life. And so, God, would you give me understanding? He wants an informed mind, but not for the wrong reason. 
Some people want an informed mind to impress others. Some people want an informed mind because they're in a desperate situation. I got to preach a message and Lord, I didn't study like I should. Teach me, give me understanding. No, that's not the psalmist at all. He wants an informed mind because he wants a life that is transformed. He wants a life that is transformed by the word. And that's clear from the pledges and the purposes that he indicates in verses 33 and 34. He says, God, if you teach me, I shall observe the way of thy statutes to the end. That's his pledge. God, teach me. My promise is long-term obedience. And then he says in verse 34, give me understanding. For what purpose? That I may observe thy law and keep it with all my heart. God, I want that understanding. I want to know your word. I want to see how it fits together so that I might obey you. And when it comes to obeying you, I'm not just interested in partial obedience. I'm interested in wholehearted obedience. When you think about God saturating your mind with his word, do you want him to do that so that your life might be transformed by the word? And are you willing to commit not just to long-term obedience, but wholehearted obedience. So he prays for his mind. But then he goes on to pray for his feet in verse 35. He says in verse 35, Make me walk in the path of thy commandments, for I delight in it. And this is a surprising prayer request. Uh, and you might, it might not hit you initially that it's a surprising prayer request, but let me remind you of what this man committed to in verses 33 and 34. He said, God, if you inform my mind, I'm committing to long-term obedience. And God, if you inform my mind, I'm committed to wholehearted obedience. He tells God, without reservation, that I'm going to do this, God. But now he comes to verse 35, and it's almost as if he said, God, I know that I can't do this. I know that I've opened my mouth and pledged obedience, but God, I need you to help me to be obedient to your word. And he's he's giving us a, a, a truth that I think oftentimes we miss in our walk with God. We think that if I have the desire and if I have the determination to walk and please God, that that is all that is needed. And I'm here to tell you today that you can have all the desire in the world. You can have all the determination in the world to to walk and please God, but you can still fall flat on your face. And the reason why I say that It's not because I've learned that from experience, but I've learned that from the psalmist. He understands that desire and determination is not sufficient. There has to be distrust in oneself. The the psalmist doesn't trust in himself to please God. 
Instead, he's dependent upon God. And so he's crying out to God. He's praying to God, God, take my feet and make them walk down the path. God, I need you to do that. I need you to work in my life. I'm incapable of doing that on my own. I can have all the desire, all the determination, but God, you have to enable me and cause me to walk in the path of your commandments. If you're not convinced by what I just said, then spend some time reading verse 10 of Psalm 119, where the psalmist says to God, not to others, to God, with all my heart I have sought thee. God, I've sought you with every ounce of my being. But the very next words that come out of his mouth, do not let me wander from thy commandments. Here is a man who sought God with all of his being. And he's telling God that. Now, if he told us, he can deceive us, but he can't deceive God. And he says, God, I've sought you with all of my being. But God, I'm dependent upon you. I don't trust myself. If I rely upon myself, I will wander from thy commandments. So do not let me wander from thy commandments. And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying in verse 35. After pledging long-term obedience and wholehearted obedience, God, take my feet, direct them, cause me to walk down the path of your commandments. And it's really a beautiful picture. It's like he's asking God to take him by the hand, like a father would take his child and they would walk down a path. He says, God, take me down the path of your commandment. I understand your commandments pave a a road. Take me down that path. But as he asked God to take him down that path, he's not kicking and screaming and saying, I don't want to go. Now, sometimes we have to do that with our children. Sometimes we have to drag them, so to speak. They're kicking and screaming. But the psalmist is not like that. He says that when it comes to the path of God's commandment, he delights in it. And so the psalmist prays for his mind that it will be informed. He prays for his feet that it will be, that they will be directed. In verse 36, he prays for his heart. Not his physical heart. Now, some of us need prayer for our physical heart. And I'm one of those people who have different heart diseases, but the psalmist is praying for his spiritual heart, the the core of his being, his mission control center, the, the place of his emotions, his desires, his feelings, the things that he wills and wants. And he's saying, God, I need you to do something toward my heart. And what is it that he prays? Incline my heart to thy testimonies. That is, turn my heart. Bend my heart. Orient my heart to your testimonies, God. And when he uses terms like statues and testimonies and word, those are just synonyms for the word of God. He's just saying, God, take my heart and orientate it and turn it and bend it 
to your wonderful and magnificent and marvelous word. Out of all the things in the world that one's heart could be turned to, this psalmist has come to realize that the best thing that the heart can be turned to is God's word. He believes in the sufficiency of scripture for everything in life. He doesn't want scripture and something else. He wants God to take his heart, his innermost being, his mission control center and turn it so that it submits to God in his word. But it's not just that he wants God to incline his heart. He wants a loyal heart. What he's praying for here is not just an inclined heart, but a loyal, a faithful and true heart. Because he realizes the heart can be turned to other things. And that's why he says at the end of that verse, and not to dishonest gain. There are sinful things that our hearts can be turned to. There are worthless things that our hearts can be turned to. There are things that our hearts can be turned to that will cause us to get off the right path. And the psalmist knew this. He says, God, take my heart. Bring it under submission of your word. I know your word will cause me to live a pure life. I know your word will keep me from sin. I know your word will counsel me. I know your word will direct me and guide me. I know your word is wonderful and powerful. Turn my heart to your word and make sure, oh God, that you do not allow my heart to be turned toward that which would cause me to be unfaithful and unloyal to you. If you want a live illustration of this, of what it means to not have a loyal heart and a faithful heart. Think about Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8 and 1 Kings chapter 11. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon, after dedicating the temple to God, at the end of that dedication, there was like a benediction. And he says to God basically these words, God, may our hearts be turned toward you. And he's praying that on behalf of all of Israel. God, turn our hearts toward you. What a marvelous prayer. What a magnificent prayer. What a prayer that should be prayed, both individually and corporately. God, turn our hearts to you. God, turn the hearts of the people at grace toward you. And Solomon prayed that prayer. But sadly, and a few chapters later, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, the testimony is given concerning Solomon that his heart was turned away by the multitude of wives and concubines he had. This man who prayed before the people of God that their hearts might be blameless was the same man whose heart was turned away from God. And it goes on to say again, his heart was turned away from God so that he didn't serve God with a full heart. And that ought to be a warning to all of us. It's not just that we want God to incline our hearts to him, but we want loyal hearts. We want faithful hearts. 
We want to make sure that our hearts are turned toward God and not toward anything. There are a lot of things out there, my friends, that would cause our hearts to be turned away from God. And it's not just women. It's not just money. It can be our pursuits, our desires that turn our hearts away from God. And so you need to pray for your heart. Do you pray for your heart that your heart will come under the submission of the word of God? Do you pray that you will have a loyal and faithful heart? That you will not be accused of spiritual adultery. Of loving others instead of loving God. In verse 37, we see another prayer request. We need to be praying for pure eyes. So he prays for his mind, he prays for his feet, he prays for his heart. But this psalmist doesn't have his head buried in the sand. He prays for his eyes. And and he realizes that when it comes to the eyes, that the eyes are the source of a ton of information. Do you realize how much enters into your life through what you see? That adage, a picture is worth what? A thousand words. That says a whole lot of how much information can enter into your life through the eye gate. Unless we think that that's not going to affect us, that what we see won't have any impact upon us. In Job chapter 31, verse 7, the statement is made that the heart followed the eyes. The heart, the real you, your will, your desire, your thoughts, the heart followed the eyes. And if that's not enough to convince you of how important the eyes are, read through your Bibles and take note of the fact that the eyes are often the source of temptation and sin. God has given us on record in his word individuals who were tempted through what they saw and individuals who ended up sinning because of what came into their life through the eye gate. The the, the classic example, and we don't need to go any further, is David. David what? Saul. He saw with his eyes Bathsheba. And then we know what that led to. And, And so we need to be concerned about our eyes. We need to be concerned about our eyes when it comes to our walk with God. And the psalmist is saying this, not in our culture, but just realize that he's saying this in a time when there was no computer, no TV, no magazines, no internet, none of that stuff. And so if he's concerned about his eyes, how much more must we be concerned about our eyes in this technological age? in which our eyes are exposed to so many things, are we praying for our eyes? And are we praying for pure eyes? That's what the psalmist did. 
He says, God, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. He's saying, God, I don't even want to look at, I don't even want my eyes to come in contact. Turn my eyes away from looking at vanity. That which is empty, that which is hollow, that which has no value or significance. He's not talking about sinful things. All of us should know that we should not be looking at sinful things. He's talking about things that are neutral. He's talking about things that don't help but hurt in our walk with God. And some of us are are looking at TV, might be looking at sports, five hours a day. We might be looking at ESPN. Nothing in and of itself that is wrong, but what it's doing is it's preventing us from feasting our eyes on the Word of God. But yet some of us are watching things that we know are sinful. And we wonder why there's no hunger, no desire, no longing, no yearning. For God's word. And so we need to have our eyes be pure. God, turn away my eyes. God, help me to avoid seeing things that will drag me down. I think if the psalmist lived today, he would take the prayer a step further. He would add Hebrews 12 verse 2 to it. He would say more than, Lord, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity, but Lord, help me to fix my eyes on the author and finisher of my faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, you can avoid a lot of things. You can, uh, you know, discipline yourself so you're not looking at, but that isn't the end result. The end result is to feast your eyes on Christ, to treasure Christ, to behold his beauty, to look at him as you run the Christian race. And so our eyes can get us in trouble. Our eyes can drain us spiritually. And no wonder he prays at the very end of verse 37, another prayer, revive me. When you look at things that are not helpful, when you look at things that are harmful, then what it does is it takes the spiritual vitality out of your life. And so you need to ask God, revive you in his ways. Well, the final prayer is in verses 38 through 40. And here he's praying for his emotions. And what he wants is his emotions to be stable and firm and not fickle. He wants his emotion to be established by the word of God. And so I'm not going to be able to develop this fully, but let me touch on the emotions that he talks about in verses 38 through 40. In verse 38, he talks about the emotion of doubt. If we're honest with ourselves, we as God's people can doubt him at times. We might doubt his character, whether he's good or not. And we know he is good, but there are times that we can doubt that. This time we doubt his promises. God promises certain things to us, and we doubt it. And somehow, someway, the psalmist is struggling with doubt, even though he just doesn't come out and say it. But when he prays, establish thy word to thy servant, that is a prayer request that God's word become firm 
and fixed and immovable in his life. He wants God to ratify his word, to make his word certain in his life so that he's trusting it again, so that he's relying upon it. And there are times in our lives where we have to do that. We might be faced with some kind of major illness where it's terminal. And and we have grown up believing Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But now we're faced with death. To die is gain. We might be kind of shaking and quivering over, is that really true? And we have to come to God and say, God, I'm doubting you. I don't want to doubt you. I want you to establish your word to me, your servant. He's not wrestling with this theologically. The psalmist says in verse 89 that God's word is settled forever in heaven. He's struggling with this experientially. He's going through some times where he's questioning the word of God. And so he's crying out to his God that God would saturate his life with his word so that he would establish the word to his servant. And he makes this marvelous statement that the goal of God's word, according to the end of verse 38, is that it produces reverence for God. You can tell if you're involved in the true hearing of God's word, the true reading of God's word, the studying of God's word, if it's producing reverence in your life. So when you take in God's word, the goal, one of the goals is reverence and awe of God. In verse 39, he deals with the the emotion of dread. There's something that he's afraid of. There's something that he's in terror of. There's something that he greatly fears. There are some things in my life that I truly fear. I fear going to the dentist. I have a wonderful dentist. I couldn't ask for a better dentist. I just ask that the Lord gives him long life and not shaky hands. But he's a great dentist, but I hate going to the dentist. And I hate walking upstairs on the outside of the building. Once I get past the second level, I'm in fear. I'm holding on to the edge, etc. There are certain things I, I hate being in a glass elevator because I have height problems. The psalmist dreaded something. And what he dreaded, according to verse 39, is reproach, insults that came from his enemies because he was focused on the word of God. And so what did he do with his emotions? He prayed that God would take away the reproach that he was experiencing. But not only did he pray that, he committed to understanding that regardless of what he's going through, that God's word is good. Despite the reproach, the insult, he can say out of his mouth, God's word is good. And then the final prayer connected to the emotions is concerning his desire in verse 40. And I'll just read that verse, and you'll have to meditate on that on your own. He says, behold, that is, he's saying that to God. God, behold. What does he want God to behold? I long for thy precepts. I I crave, I yearn, I hunger, I I thirst for your word, God. 
And when you look at this verse, it reverses the order of all the other verses. All the other verses began with a prayer, then a statement. Here he begins with the statement, God, I long for your word. And then he prays, revive me. Revive me. Give me spiritual rejuvenation. Put some pep in my step. Don't allow me to flounder uh, in my walk with you. It was mentioned earlier that you support a missionary who's connected with the navigators. Navigators came up with a word hand illustration that talks about different methods for taking in God's word. And they compared it to a person's hand. And each finger represented a way to take in God's word. One finger, hearing the word. Another finger, reading the word. Another finger, studying the word. Another finger, memorizing the word. And the last finger, meditating on the word. And and, and the implication is if you want God's word to be a part of your life, you must be involved in Bible intake. But I want to suggest to you that we got to go further than just taking in the word of God. We have to do what the psalmist did and pray for a saturated life, a life drenched with the word of God. We have to pray for an informed mind, directed feet, a loyal heart, pure eyes, and stable emotions. If you want your life to be transformed, if you want your life to be different, Not only must you take in the word, but you need to be praying that God will use the word in your life. I hope you understand, I think most of you do, that Bible intake and praying for a word-saturated life means nothing at all if you have not repented of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not turned to God from idols, to serve a true and living God, and to wait for his son from heaven. You can read all the Bible that you want. You can hear all the messages that you want. Uh, You can even pray prayers and think that they're doing something. But it means nothing at all. At the core of what we're talking about is a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when God saves you, you and I desire and want our lives to be saturated with his word. And so if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day of salvation for you. For those of us who are saved, we need to treasure the word and love the word and ask God to saturate his word in every part of our life. Let's pray. Father, Help us to be praying for a word-saturated life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.